This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. From Heritage Radio, it's Why Food, a show about creators, entrepreneurs, and visionaries in the food industry and the stories behind their success. Today, I'm here with Matt Abramchik, the owner of four Tribeca restaurants, Smith & Mills, Warren 77, Tiny's, and his most recent venture, Eve's. How are you doing today, Matt? Very well, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course, man. It's great to have you on the show. Is this your first time here in Heritage Radio? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Very excited to be here. Yeah, it's always a nice buzz getting in here in, in the afternoon and feeding off the guys that are eating out there. Although it does make you hungry looking out and seeing those pizzas, right? Yeah, it, it wakes, peaks some of my senses, sure. We'll, uh, we'll have to get a little bit of that afterwards. <laughs> Please, yeah. Um, so how's everything going in your line? You've got uh, four restaurants operating at the moment. Yeah, we do. We, uh, you know, it's a busy time of year. This, I feel like this season has been a little bit uh, less busy, maybe because of the rain and the grayness. But we've had fabulous, uh, you know, support on those days where we... Uh, have some nice weather at our new restaurant eve which is really fabulous on the corner overlooking the water over there there's some amazing moments that we've had there and just trying to spend a lot of time there to uh watch watch this new incredible restaurant sort of lift off the ground how long ago did you open up eve uh we've we've opened uh i think we've been open now for almost seven months uh and we uh we we started uh with you know it was a different season so the menu was a, a bit different and we've sort of uh uh, we very quickly after opening, we encountered lunch and brunch, and so now we're a bit, we've been open uh, for lunch, brunch, uh, and and of course dinner uh, uh, seven days a week uh, for uh, the, the last few months, and we've really just had a lovely you know outpour of support as we you know we're very thankful always to our loyal Tribeca following and you know our friends from across the city that come down and visit us but it's been uh, it's been a great a great season uh, overall you're really starting to conquering that part of, to starting to conquer that part of Manhattan aren't you you've uh, found, found your little niche in there with four four restaurants in the Tribeca area yeah well I've we, we've been working together my partners and I and, and and all the great people that we work with have been working down there for some time so we're very familiar uh, with with the people that live there and of course people that work there and uh, living down there and you know being part of a community and also being able to you know entertain and uh, host the members of the community is is a from a lifestyle perspective and from just overall hospitality perspective it feels you know uh, we are of the thing that which we are trying to serve and do and so it's you know a nice sort of circle of hospitality for us and would you ever ever go back to your hometown of the upper west side the the upper east side, the no, upper east side. I, I you know i i uh, i never say never but i i really uh uh, we have a lot of work that we're, uh, you know, sort of encountered already downtown and things that we've thought about doing in Brooklyn and, and, and have and have done some work in Brooklyn. But, uh, 
we we uh, I think we have so much uh, so much to do down in Tribeca. I think that's probably where we'll stay focused for the foreseeable future. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about where you grew up because you did grow up on the Upper East Side. Yeah. You're a New Yorker to the heart. Yeah. You still live in New York. What was it when you were growing up? Um, I know, typical to the show, food wasn't uh, your thing, you know, or did you grow up with a love for food? Was that something that was important in your home growing up? Well, as a New Yorker and growing up on First Avenue in the 50s, I, I, uh, you know, at that at that time, of course, all these neighborhoods in New York have changed so much since since I was a kid, uh, you know, 35 years ago or whatever. But, uh, um, you know, to me, growing up in the city was about the local, you know, city, city food that really people sort of prided themselves on the the bakeries, the delis, the pizza shops, uh, those places that had been there for some time. It never really occurred to me how long they had been there for or uh, but really places that sort of inhabited the culture of the city where, you know, there were great lunchtime pizzerias, great morning time bagel shops, um, you know, other restaurants. Sure. You know, as a young person, I, I was I was able to go into various restaurants. I remember going into a restaurant called Remy and being aware of like Adam Tahani and you know, him being a neighbor in, in my building and, you know, being, you know, kind of friendly with his kids as, as young people that, you know, sort of kind of piqued my interest a little bit in, into something that seemed a bit different than other people that, you know, I knew, I knew that they were, you know, f- friends of mine, pe- dads and moms and what they'd been doing. And it seemed, it seemed interesting and it seemed, uh, it seemed of a certain, um, uh, type of work that was really engaging and, and rewarding. Uh, certainly, but uh, I think from from my youth, my, my my youth was spent going to the pizza shops and bagel shops of the uh, uh, upper Upper East Side and and mid, Midtown and and downtown, going to like the old, you know, Jewish delis and dessert shops that you know sort of my grandparents had 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 been going to and lived around and bakeries. It wasn't it, you know it was more about home cooking and right. and, and and the occasional trip to uh, some nice. Typically, Italian restaurant or uh, some other restaurant that was uh, an occasion, but it, it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't a regular sort of. Well, thing. food didn't have the sex appeal back then that it does today. It's like it's like it's like an element of rock and roll, rock and roll today. Uh, certainly, certainly, you're certainly right. I, I mean, back then, I think people who were chefs or worked in the food industry certainly deserved the des- the same sort of designation that they that they get today. But they, I don't think they they rarely received it from a professional career standpoint i think the rarefied uh, view of chef and technique and all that stuff which has been promulgated by social media and the whatever trends and you know forces that are at work uh they, they've seriously changed the you know the dynamic and yeah now now chefs are regular you know like rock and roll like downtown bar owners or whatever yeah absolutely so let's talk about where it all started for you because it started out in uh with numbers and digits um, that's where that's that's where your first uh, love was, or we will figure out if it was a love of yours or not. Yeah, but finance was your first calling. Well, I think you know, growing up in New York, in being surrounded by the professionals that worked in New York, I I sort of faced a, 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 a at an early age a question of whether I wanted to uh, engage in business or uh, other other pursuits. Uh, but the other pursuits never really made sense. You know, I remember collecting baseball cards and then selling baseball cards and being, you know, interested in, you know, kind of nerdy comic books and music and just having tastes and, you know, being able to 
feel like, you know, I, I could learn a language of business and then apply it to things that I enjoyed sort of emboldened me and, and, and pushed me into pursuing finance. Whereas I, I, it wasn't so much as a, uh, uh, study that I that I particularly enjoyed but more a language and a core a way of thinking that I that I felt was important to embrace uh, seeing as business seemed to be a, a likely you know next stop for me yeah we've had a lot of people on in here we had uh, last week we had um, Hannah Cheng from Mimi Cheng's oh, cool. and last season we had Adam Eskin from Dig In two people who worked there quite a while in finance and talked about how that kind of influenced them and influenced the way that they ran their lives ran a business operated the professionalism the the attention to detail all that stuff what it teaches you and then eventually they were able to kind of apply that stuff in food is that something that you found that it was able to to lend some uh, some skills to you from being in there well as i say i think it's it was it was really helpful in learning the language of business being able to understand what what risk means how do you think about um spending your time how do you evaluate the ways that you can um, accomplish goals and protect yourself really from all the varied pitfalls that there are in business and especially in in the restaurant business. You know, real estate being, I think, one of the first ones that I really tried to learn about and, um, you know, having always been passionate about New York City landscape, you know, real estate neighborhood, you know, getting, you know, kind of peeling that layer and getting into um, individual buildings or individual blocks, individual neighborhoods, feeling like I I wanted to be, I wanted to work where I lived and really trying to understand what it meant to be a local community person in New York City. Because as a kid growing up in the city, I, I didn't feel like I had a very strong attachment to any community. And I always felt like, you know, this small town feeling of what I thought the village was all about. You know, really, it was something really, the texture of it, it sort of really inspired me to kind of figure out how I could, you know, be involved in that and have have that as part of my life since it seemed so, you know, so rewarding being in NYU, uh, growing up in the city and then going down to NYU and being able to become inspired again about a city that I was already familiar with. Um, and then, you know, of course, continuing to get inspired about the city is, is really what it's all about for me. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um so just to talk about your, your kind of the, what happened in your career in finance, where did it take you um, and how long did you work? How long did you work there? Well, I probably worked, uh, for, I would say, uh, uh, after college, uh, uh, three full time jobs in succession. I think one one was one point where I was maybe out of work for a few months. I've, I was probably uh, I was fired from each one of those jobs. So I'm, I'm glad that I didn't have to make it work and I could come up with another way of making some money. But um you know, we, we uh, I, I basically um, left college and, and, and went into consulting, um, learning how to write emails, for instance. I, I, I give about 70% of my, my time in, uh, in those few years, uh, you know, sort of credit for, for learning how to communicate in business, which is such a difficult thing. I'm not a great communicator uh, really at all, but, but I've learned how to develop you know how to reflect what I'm really thinking and in, in into what I'm saying, and I think you know that work experience, being able to convey ideas through numbers, using documentation to support ideas and theories, 
um, in a way that, you know, you had numerical representation using Excel and uh, trying to uh, coordinate, you know, various techniques of assessing risk. Th these, these things helped me communicate to partners that I would later have uh, in life and in my restaurant businesses that were that type of communication has been, you know, vital, vi really vital to, to, to being able to create new businesses and manage businesses in the, in the industry that I'm in now. Right, and speaking of your partners, what was the what was the first venture that you got involved in when you got into the game of hospitality? Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to be, um, you know, old old childhood friends of the opening day general manager of Employees Only, uh, my dear friend Akiva Elstein, who who um, really brought me into the business in a way, showed me something uh, that I was interested in, obviously, and participated in with him as an investor at Employees Only and. Really, you know, from there just became, you know, began the kind of love affair with hospitality, you know, being uh, involved in, in the, the, the part of the process that creates this kind of, um, you know, nightly entertainment, enlightenment sort of thing where you're, you know, you're really transporting people out of, out of their days and into a more, you know, provocative maybe or nourishing sort of environment. It was, uh, it was really... Uh, it was ex extremely, it, it, it just felt natural and it felt like something that I really wanted to do for the first time, really. Yeah, it must have been an incredible place to start yourself off because the attention to detail there is incredible at employees only. They, it's so professional, even to see the, the chef whites on the bartenders and to see apprentice and head bartender, you really know that it's a serious operation behind the bar. No one's in there to make a few tips. They're just in there because that's their profession, that's their goal and that's their career. Yeah, I mean, you know, those guys are among the most professional people, I think, that have uh, ever attended bar. Uh, the kind of, you know, attention to detail and also just thoughtfulness in general. The facility and, you know, on the one hand, you have to be extremely empathetic as a bartender. On the other hand, you have to be, uh, you know, uh, technically to be to be a bartender at employees only. You have to obviously have studied and, and, and you know, achieved a certain amount of, you know, skill and 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 you know uh the people at employees only sort of for me really defined what it meant to be uh, a professional and and sort of um as a young person never having been around uh guys who had such a strong bond and and people who had you know this way of you know creating this teamsmanship you know that that was also an extremely um attractive and um you know, uh, it, it, it made me aspire to try to try to be able to create something in, in my own way, not their way, because I'm not, you know, a bartender by by skill level, uh, by their skill level for sure. And, and, and uh, you know, it's been people like people like, you know, Dushan and Jay and Igor and all the bartenders there, Henry and Billy and Akiva, of course. You know, they really, I think they helped change the, the culture of bars in, in New York. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. How long did you spend there? Um, I, I um, worked there. You were, you were an investor and a yeah. floor manager at the same time. Well, I was an investor. I think they liked me enough. I was a smiley enough guy. And I, I, I uh, my brother worked as a bar apprentice for a while and bartended at some point. My brother was incredibly gifted behind the bar and just a just a really bright personality that really, uh, I think flourished there. And later we went to work at Beatrice and open Beatrice together. And 
thought that was a joint venture between the two of you. Well, Jack came in as the bar manager, effectively, and he came in. Uh, I had other partners at the time, uh, but but Jack was there, um, you know, for many of the nights that we were open. And as a day, you know, he, he you know he was there probably three or four nights a week as a bar uh, bartender, bar manager. Um, I saw in an article with the New York Times, he said that uh, the Beatrice Inn took five or ten years off your life. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure that was close to the time that I was doing it, but I, I hope it didn't. But I think it might have. I, I definitely, uh, you know, the I always tell people that there's a unique gratification in owning your own business. And it really, uh, I think at that time, you know, I really, you know, I didn't have kids and I really wanted to succeed. I had failed, you know, several times before. I failed in a career, basically. But I, I think I really wanted to put, put it all on the line and try my best to do something that I wasn't quite sure what it was, but it was pretty irreverent. And it was something that felt uh, very of New York and for New York. And, uh, it, you know, it felt great. And, and there was there were some really high highs, but um, there was a tremendous amount of work behind the scenes to keep it open and to continue the operation throughout the various pitfalls that uh, sort of befell our, our situation. And the Beatrice Inn that you uh, opened and operated is very, very different to the Beatrice Inn that people know today. Sure, yeah. Back then it was it was more of a club, right? It was it was less of a restaurant, more of a club. Uh, yeah, I think it was more of, you know, people went there, they could get some food, but it wasn't really people going there for food. It was more about people uh, having, um, you know, sort of an escape from the city, really. I mean, it was sort of like, you know, going down the rabbit hole. I see a pizza a pizza lover looking in. Yeah. Like, I just stared into the studio there to take a peek. I think he, he thought there was a magic room behind here. But it is what it is. It's, you see it all. It's pretty cool. You, I think maybe a two-way mirror would be... I think it would be great. Could yeah. get even creepier in here. Like a, like a nice uh, retail store where you see a big shiny mirror <laughs> and we can see out, but they can't see in. Yeah, we can make funny faces at them. Um, but, but uh, no, I think, I think we... Uh, we really, we had a terrific time and we, we spent a lot of time trying to uh, figure out how to make it the most compelling, fun room that we thought, you know, could, could be had in the city. Really try to, you know, it, it, the, the, at that time the city was, you know, before social media really, uh, I remember I text messaging. I couldn't even really understand why I would text message someone. Uh, you know, I'm kind of a Luddite when it comes to that sort of stuff, the technology or whatever, but... Um, we we really we really tried to mix have the best mix of people in the room, uh, you know. Every night that we were open, uh, young and old, uh, artists, non-artists, uh, you know, careers, uh, whatever other you know, race, demography, or you know, we we, we tried to create an eclectic and uh, sort of, in a way, rarefied environment because the ceilings were low and people were sort of right next to each other once you caught in into the space it had this transportive feeling and you sort of were i think made to feel more comfortable talking to whomever it was that was near you because it was just so you really it wasn't a clicky space people weren't like running to go onto their phones it was it was more like people looking up as opposed to sometimes you go to out nowadays and people are just constantly they're looking down at the menus there's so many menus they're looking down at the phone there the other person's on the phone and it, it becomes like half down half up you know right. going in and out of waves of attention i think we held people's attention for a moment longer than maybe uh you know what what, what inspired that though because 
I know that New York in the 90s uh, had this amazing club scene. It had an amazing party scene. And that kind of started to close down towards the 2000s. And it kind of got quelled and a lot calmer. And what you seem to do with Beatrice Inn kind of transported what was happening there, it would be, albeit in a smaller space, stick it in the West Village and let it kind of take life again um, in a small in a small little area. Yeah, I, I was always fascinated with the West Village. I really, you know, in my time living on Granite Street in the uh, the late 90s, I, I, you know, the West Village was still kind of off the grid a little bit. And it wasn't, uh, there, of course, there were many residential people living there always, but uh, or for as long as I can remember, but it wasn't quite as uh, of a destination as it was today. I don't think it was quite as sought after. And, you know, before that section of West 4th Street and Bleecker became, you know, such um, compelling, you know, real estate for national companies and, and such. But, uh, you know, this, there were these little stores that were all kind of vacant and then the Waverly Inn and our store and... Um, and, and Cafe Clooney all sort of opened at the same time. Um, Is this a friend of yours here? Yeah. We've got, we've got another person at the window. Yeah. Um, so, 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 you know, it was kind of a fun moment for New York when these, like, really, you know, Beatrice had been open for 60, 70 years. Waverly had been open for, you know, maybe the same, maybe a little bit less. Uh, Clooney was a restaurant before that. It was th- these great village corners all near to each other. We were a basement, and and people just kind of started coming down into that little nook. There was Corner Bistro over there. Um, it was just a fun time to 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 kind of um, bring it into this little like part of the city. This this kind of whereas people had been going out to these bottle service oriented nightclubs, and of course Bungalow Eight was you know ubiquitous with being the most exciting you know sort of uh, destination in New York. But but what we tried to do is really make it a little bit more homespun. You know, the dark room was really inspirational to me. The bar in the in the in the Lower East Side in the basement, and I I really uh, I kind of dug that idea of being in the basement, um, um, and not really uh, not really not really caring about much. Wanting to get people to kind of enter this little rabbit hole that we were in and get get them out of the whole city thing, and not try to sell people bottles or expensive just cocktails just time. just give them a good time that that's what we were really focused on and when you were just yeah. trying to do that why was everyone rallying against you when you were trying to do something that was giving the city so much love and so much happiness yeah well we we were you know the i guess the catalyst for more noise on the block and we were you know sort of in a position in that block where there were uh neighbors that had been there for a long time and preferred the past incarnation of the restaurant which was uh that of a you know red sauce family you know sort of uh, restaurant where like it was said that the Algonquin Round Table or whatever met in the back, and there was a secret exit from the back onto Eighth Avenue for whatever when the cops would come and everybody would run away and the other you know iterations of the Italian. You know, we 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 thought we might have. There was so many weird little parts of that space. So I think we just sort of we would encounter certain things and then we'd be like, well, we should just board this up now and <laughs> move on for, with the rest of our day here. But let but, that be history. I- exactly, yeah. I, I remember just constantly hitting my head in the basement as we had to do uh, our, our uh, office work during the daytime and it was uh, you know, the ceilings upstairs were six and a half feet tall. So you can imagine the ceilings in the basement were, you know, especially when there were the kind of drain pipes every uh, every every few feet in a certain section of it. You wouldn't the, want to be claustrophobic in a space like that. No, no, no. The claustrophobia was would not be a, a, a great uh, 
character trait there. But no, it, it, it was a, a fun time and an absolutely magical time in the West Village. And I think the city just, you know, gravitated to the same thing that we did, which is a, 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 like a basement house party. That was the, the, the kind of catchphrase that we always felt like it was really because you'd invite people over and they would bring their friends and it would be a very, you know, very open environment, very interactive environment and uh, just a high energy environment. Must have put your name on the map amongst people in the industry in New York City uh, with what you achieved with the Beatrice Inn. Did a lot of people come to you and want to start recreating this in other places? Well, it, it definitely helped you know, propel me to my next projects. I certainly met a lot of great people that I had no context of knowing before. And so it was a great, you know, catalyst for me to um, become more involved in the hospitality business and try to make, uh, you know, new, new riffs on different models or different concepts that I had been interested in or found myself interested in exploring. <clears throat> so it was a great, you know, enabler to 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 do new things and i think you know i've always been someone that can um I, maybe it's because i have the add thing or whatever but i just you know i'm i'm, I'm really gravitated towards I, I gravitate towards the next thing and i try to you know i'm always thinking about other new concepts and trying to develop uh new locations for for new one-of-a-kind concepts which is really what we do we've never done anything twice we've done you know 12 or 13 projects in about a decade so we've been you know we've been pretty busy yeah and we're going to get into that I'm going to we're going to chat a bit more about what you have operating right now the Beatrice Inn uh, you sold it eventually in the end um, was it a bittersweet was it a bittersweet goodbye to let it go you enjoyed those three and a half years and had to move on to the next one yeah I mean it was you know uh, that although it doesn't sound like a lot of time it certainly felt like a lot of time whilst we were doing it and uh you know, as I say, it was a callus to many great things. And so like everything in life, you know, change happens and you just have to move on and try to take all the good out of a situation and try to, you know, move on to the next situation and create it, you know, try to create it also another special situation. And, you know, all the people that worked there and were part of it went on to bigger, better um, positions in their life and, you know, have grown substantially as, as we do, hopefully. Uh, and I think, you know, it's a nice part of a shared history that some of us New Yorkers have and other people around the world. Well, we're going to go to a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, your triumph in Tribeca. Ah, fabulous. Wonderful. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. 
Hi, my name's Katie Kiefer. I'm the host of What Doesn't Kill You on the Heritage Radio Network. I do a show about politics and policy around food, food and agriculture, you know, what feeds us. Tune in on Mondays at 12 p.m. to hear about politics, food policy, agriculture, cattle disasters, you name it. I cover it. Basically, whatever interests me, I'm going to bring to you. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. You can go to theheritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to become a member today. Show us some love, especially me. I need it. Hi. Welcome back to Why Food. We're here with Madame... Abram chick when yeah, I, I when I say it it's it rolls up when I look at it it looks like a tongue twister it yeah you yeah like I think on once you see yeah <laughs> <laughs> well we're here with Matt Abram chick uh, and we've just been discussing his earlier ventures uh, your career in finance and then when you went on to work in employees only eventually opened up to Beatrice in and now we're on the, the, the latter part, or the most recent part of your uh, hospitality career yeah. in, uh, in Tribeca. What drew you towards moving down there, uh, towards operating down in that, part of the, in that part of the city? Sure. Well, after, after living in the village in uh, you know, my late teen years in college and early 20s, I, I uh, um, sort of got the sense that you know, it was great and I wanted to kind of maybe figure out whether the East Village was for, more for me or maybe another area would be more interesting. And I just kind of, my dad worked downtown and uh, did some work in Tribeca. I did some work, more more work in the financial district. And I just found Tribeca to be really uh, uh, kind of magical and empty feeling and spacious. And it had this kind of uh, little city quality uh, in in the big in this big city envelope, which is a theme that I've always been sort of obsessed with, this idea of local community, small um, within this big, you know, kind of scary, scary city. So I just, I guess, you know, we just, uh, I just moved down there. And then shortly thereafter, a few years later, opened up the first restaurant. And which was the first one that you opened up in Tribeca? After, after doing Beatrice, uh, for a few months, uh, we actually signed the lease on Smith and Mills before we signed the lease on Beatrice. But after having opened Beatrice for a few months, we opened Smith and Mills. Um, and we, uh, in, 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 you know, the summer, of 2000, I guess it was 2007, um, uh, you know, and, and quickly found it to be a little magical, uh, venue. I mean, you know, we have a restaurant called Tiny's in the bar upstairs as well, which has been around and been fabulous for years, but, you know, Smith and Mills is, is quite tiny as, as if, you know, a few hundred square feet in total, uh, square shape, uh, just off the corner of Greenwich and Northmore or Nathaniel Moore street. Um, but it, it, it right away became, I think because we had this idea of this, you know, post-industrial kind of, you know, ode to the worker sort of decor aesthetic, you know, with my partner Akiva, uh, that we both kind of shared from, from a young age and, you know, that whole sort of, uh, vintage, uh, uniform, uh, you know, sort of we played with these ideas of what was a day worker how 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 would a how would a industrial uh new york city sort of uh environment best be con- construed and so we found like a an otis elevator that was installed one of the first few thousand otis elevator installed uh in the city um from a building on reed street that we actually uh we took apart it was in the fourth or fifth 
floor of a uh, elevator. Uh, 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 what do you call it? Elevator corridor or elevator chaseway in a building. We broke it down and we rebuilt it as our bathroom. We took wood forms that were uh, the forms that made the fascia for various plumbing drains. Uh, ducting drains and made them into a back bar pieces. We used a design, wood design from uh, other uh, sort of uh, pubs that had been famous sort of for um, their sort of workman quality. And it was sort of this Freemason workman, this independent worker, this sort of uh, authentic sort of sort of warrior, you know, worker, poet kind of thing uh, that we, illusory idea and image that we had in our minds that we really... Uh, worked very hard to sort of capture that feeling in, in, in at Smith and Mills, and I think uh, is is the restaurant and bar industry. Is it the because something that I've kind of gathered from looking at your restaurants, and we had a chat on the phone yesterday and chatting to you today. It's it's the space and it's it's bringing people together. That seems to be something that you're in love with. That that the, the, a real interest that you have because to yeah. have such an incredible restroom in Smith and Mills and to have looked at an elevator and thought how can we take this apart and reintegrate it into a room and what you've done with Tiny's and what you've done with Eve and all these they're, like I said to you before they're, they're four restaurants owned by the same man but look like they've been set up by four entirely different people because yeah. you've taken four different concepts and kind of made them totally their own sure I mean we have yeah I think thank you uh, I think we you know my partner Akiv and I at, at, at Smith and Mills and Eve and then um, at Warren 77 and Tiny's um, you know I, I you know we tried in all these stores to create a narrative and a voice that was unique to a concept you know my, my brother and sister and I inspired by a kid's story at Tiny's came up with this idea again of this small little townhouse building, this pink little townhouse building in the sea of large buildings and this large landscape of New York City uh, and with characters on the menu or little laser cut uh, menu boards and, you know, going to Warren 77 where we have all these one-of-a-kind art pieces, the, you know, we came up with the ratio, we were we worked with Wyden Kennedy to come up with a, a piece that described the statistical chances of becoming a professional major league baseball player and we related it to the uh, process of how many people from who played high school baseball came out uh, and then ever became a professional baseball player so we have this like you know 2400 cards and then the one card next to it is like the, the the one out of 24 ratio or we have a wooden laser cut sculpture of all our favorite, my favorite memories of New York sports and all the most, you know, fundamentally, I think, uh, landmark, if you want to call it that, moments of New York sports. Um, and we try to really tell these stories from the heart and, you know, develop um, this texture of intimacy through uh, interiors that is, I think, personal. And because it's personal, we're able to really uh, sharpen that viewpoint. And over time, they, these things sometimes take a year after opening to really mature to where they're finished um, because they begin to take on the personalities of the people that work in them and frequent them, which is another beautiful part of it. And another reason why being in a neighborhood, one neighborhood, enables you to kind of gather people in a special way because you're taking care of the same people in different places. So you have to, you know, develop 
a different since they're different concepts you have to develop a different you know sort of paradigm in terms of what what is the what is the goal here you know we might have a $15 hamburger here and we might have a $20 hamburger there how are we comfortable selling two different hamburgers only a few blocks away and what's the reason for this one being that way or the other being another way um, and, and it's all, it's all part of the story which we love you know we, we love sort of creating You've talked about success and failure and, you know, the, the earlier parts and, and with regard to failures and finance and then being hungry for success. With the amount of restaurants that you have opened, um, what's the through line? What's, what's, the, what's one thing now, years later looking and reflecting, that has worked for you, a consistent thing that has allowed your restaurants to be successful? Sure, I think uh, being downtown and, and, you know, just sometimes when you... When you you share, you know, so many moments with the same people and, of course, having great partners and just being, you know, being there for people, being open for people, um, you know, me having a weakness for characters and really encouraging people to be characters, encouraging staff to have fun, encouraging people to be, you know, comfortable in, in our places and make them feel like, they're always welcome and they're home there and there's something for them, you know, anytime they want. That's really, I think, a, a, a big part of it for, for me because I, I didn't come at it, as I say before, I didn't come at it from a typical, you know, hospitality background. I sort of, you know, as we alluded to off, off, off set or whatever, you know, um, so many people find their ways into these businesses from other fields and from other pursuits and from other studies as I did um, and really just being an observer, being a New Yorker, being someone that kind of always liked to sit on a park bench and just watch people walk by, just having, you know, little ideas in my head about what these people were doing or what they wanted or what they were talking about. You know, that was sort of, you know, the kind of environment that we wanted to create, you know, one where we were, you know, we didn't want to force some, you know, one viewpoint on you. We wanted you to kind of sit back, get comfortable and hang around for a while and, you know, let you sort of determine what you know sort of service that you wanted or what what how long you wanted to stay there or uh you know how how many times a week you really needed to come to come in to get to where you needed to be and with with the with the spaces that you have right now it's it seems like i suppose after taking something that was so crazy and energetic like the beatrice and going to four spaces that you have now yeah. have they kind of taken more of a mellow kind of complex compared to what you had then yeah i think so i think it, you you couldn't i couldn't sustain that type of uh lifestyle and and sort of business model for for much longer than i did i think you know we afterwards i i worked on a nightclub called bunker and worked in in other venues that had been or developed other venues that had you know a similar idea but i think for me, I, I, I became, as I said before, you know, with Smith & Mills opening shortly after Beatrice did, learning about that model, which was more of a, a, a daytime business. It didn't go as late. Um, I mean, it was also nighttime, but it, it had a kind of a fuller life. And I think, you know, being able to entertain people um, all over, all across the day rather than just from, you know, 11 to 3, it, it became more natural to me and felt more... Uh, just felt more personal again. So it just, I kind of, I think I veered off in that direction. 
yeah, I can imagine being up all day and up all uh, all night is a, is a tough lifestyle, and it's something that you can do when you're single and young. But once you have a family and a wife, and yeah, you have other things on your mind, it's hard, like you said, to sustain that. It's hard to sustain, and I think the people that that do it are are an incredible breed. I mean, they're built almost their stamina is that of almost like a, a racehorse compared to uh, some other kind of a horse. But but uh, you know, people people. A lot of times, you, you know, tell me that they had these incredible memories at Beatrice. But, you know, people get married in our other restaurants. People, you know, or meet their their eventual, uh, you know, wedded person. Um, people have incredible, you know, incredibly important personal moments. And, you know, of course, we have incredibly bright stars of New York and luminaries and people that are just, you know, just could be just neighborhood people, but are, have that kind of quality where they've been of that area for so long or they've just you know of a certain type of relationship to the restaurant that they've been coming so long that it's just you begin these relationships and you find that uh, there's a certain amount of energy that you know it's the the nighttime thing ends up becoming one note and it, it became sort of one note to me and it and it it became less interesting as you were talking about with how you're drawn to uh, you're always drawn to new product projects and new opportunities do you think you'll stay in the Tribeca area? Do you have an, an interest to, to look beyond that, to look beyond New York City? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I love the Tribeca area. I hope to do another couple projects down there before, you know, they give us the boot. But I think, uh, I think you know, you know, if we pull it up uh, a little further, I think, you know, being in New York is, is a great joy and being tied to the city through these venues is a privilege. And uh, it's, it's tough and it's becoming tougher and tougher. So I think the new projects that we engage in and that when you say it's becoming tougher what do you mean well the costs are becoming much higher and through that and that's really across the board it's the development cost the uh you know occupancy cost the input cost the variable costs that have to do with all the different parts of the business um you know, so we have small stores. I've always loved small stores. That's part, to me, part and parcel of being a community venue, or had been um, historically, um, because I think it gave people a way to relate to each other that uh, just large places just, just to me, never had that um, intimacy and that sort of transportive feeling. I all, all of a sudden would feel, oh, gosh, I'm in this bus station, uh, and I just, I'd rather not be here right now. I'd rather just go outside and just probably hang out outside and whatever. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think, um, um, from the opportunities that I've seen and from, you know, the other people that have, uh, you know, the relationships I have in this, in, in, in within the industry that, you know, it seems like the general wisdom is that there are more people trying to be in the industry than have ever been um you know real estate of course is uh you know you can walk across the city and look at you know the sort of the way mom and pops have been you know really eliminated from a lot of neighborhoods and you know from new corners to uh, high traffic locations you you don't see as many mom and pops uh or at least i don't see as many mom and pops as i as i had you see a lot of empty stores in a lot of these locations in the west village that had been coveted um and you wonder whether the economics in a small restaurant are attainable or, frankly, whether they're worth uh, the risk or the time. Because a lot of times you, you just, 
put in so much energy into all of these places and the amount of money that you could make really isn't um, substantial in, in a way that someone that might have spent that time you know, mastering his craft uh, might, might choose to go to another city and open up a small store or try their luck with a more expensive larger store or you know, maybe try for a neighborhood that was more, uh, as nowadays the, uh, seems to be a, a big pattern for successful restaurateurs is to develop a more fast, casual type of minimal service um, product where people who, I guess nowadays, are constantly engaged in something on the phone or are in between this going to that or need to eat in the car or want to pick something up for later where they have 30 minutes to eat they just it's more effective to pick up yeah. food and take it out than it is to um have really you been, have you been to made nice or, yeah made nice the new spot by Daniel I, I haven't I I, uh, I want to go very badly I've heard the curry cauliflower it's top notch is pretty out, out, outstanding I know they've only been open for a few weeks so I, I hope to make it in the next couple weeks and check it out they've they've done that very very well you feel like you're in a, a supreme place and you're getting food in like three minutes it's that's incredible because obviously the quality of food i'm sure i don't have to go there to know that it's it's outstanding i know that uh, i i know they hired or they worked with shepherd ferry to to develop uh, branding and a real of new york and and kind of in a way irreverent renegade version of a fast casual place and I think you know I, I really always had a tough time understanding fine dining and over you know um, over stimulated dining scenarios but I find that uh, uh, those folks Daniel Hum and his partners and their teams are so uh, they're so thoughtful and so engaged in the creative part of the process that it's it's uh, just a joy to be in anything that they uh, that they have their hands in and just for you, you know, it must be it must be incredible to be part of this this hospitality family in New York City because I know once you get into it, it's a very tight knit kind of field where everyone gets to know each other. It must be uh, it must be pretty special to be part of that. Yeah, it's a funny industry where people are constantly trying to understand what is it that is coming next down the pipeline, who's doing what, what are they serving there, how are they? You know, I think nowadays I I don't engage enough with social media, but I know people on social media have such developed quick they develop such quick opinions on dishes and you know the idea of the colorful plate or whatever it is that kind of makes this great photo or you know because sometimes you crave something because of a feeling in your belly but sometimes it's also because of a visual that you have or a memory that you have connected with something but I think nowadays people you know people are stimulated in, in a different way I think than they used to be and I think from a restaurant perspective you know the community is is constantly trying to evolve to figure out you know what's next and what what are we you know who of the you know vastly creative ilk we're, are going to come up with a kind of a the the, the next version of something or a, a, a totally new kind of product like you know similar to those guys that we were just talking about yeah no it's it's it's, it's interesting it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the city over the next few years because as you said it's more challenging and people are having to become uh, more creative yeah but before we leave this conversation today um i have to ask you the, the cliffhanger that i ask everyone every week Uh-oh. um what has the food industry given you what uh, when you reflect and look back on it as to the man that you were before you worked in the world of food and wine and drink uh what has it given you since you've got into it yeah I, well i i think it's uh, it's given me uh a trade which is nice to feel like i uh 
can call something, you know, my, my area of expertise. I never thought I would feel that way about anything necessarily. Um, never, we're, I've never been validated by something like that before. You know, next week, no, in two weeks on the 19th, we'll be celebrating our 10th year anniversary at Smith & Mills, which is uh, the first time I've, I've celebrated a full 10 year as an operating partner. Uh, That's a massive achievement. In, in a business. And I, thank you. I feel that way. It feels like an achievement. Uh, and uh, we, you know, so, sometimes being being part of so many different businesses creates a feeling of, you know, these are my babies. I want to be around them and I want to nurture them. But I, I only have so much time for you and I, you and I, I know you're okay over there. So I'll see you next week. But I, I think, you know, for hospitality for me really... Uh, as it relates to all the people and the relationships that I've built over time and the people that have helped me and that come and join us in the restaurants. I just, I think it's a very nurturing family-like environment. Uh, it is a true New York community for me in Tribeca and I hope for all our guests. And if anything, it's made me feel really at, even more at home uh, as a New Yorker than I've ever felt in, in my life. Super, super. Thanks very much for coming on the show today, Matt. It's been a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and it's been lovely to even uh, explore the the neighborhood of Tribeca just even through hearing it from you. I hope hope you can come down and have a beer with me soon. I will, I will. Fantastic. I want to extend my thanks to Heritage Radio Network for providing this platform of conversation and putting 33 other shows out there. If you want to see any more shows, learn more about it, learn more about the network, please visit heritageradionetwork.org. Next week, we're going to be chatting to Jordan Silbert from Q Drinks. Uh, he started the, the company one day when he realized that the tonic that he had with his gin was just masquerading the flavor of the gin and wanted to create something more flavorsome and with better quality. He's a really interesting guy, and we're very looking forward to having, on, having him on the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe to the show. That small action has a huge reaction to the show's popularity. And I want to say a massive thank you to you for listening to today's show. If you ever want to get in touch with me, please email me at whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org or you can follow me on Instagram at whyfoodpodcast. Until next week, thanks very much, guys. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.